This is Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest right now is George O'Connor. Uh, your latest book is Ball Peen Hammer, as well as Journey into Mohawk Country, um, which came out, I guess, last year? I think it's 2006. 2006. That's three years ago. Wow, yeah, I've been slacking off. What are you doing? Um, I guess tell me a little bit about yourself, about your interest in comics, uh, and is what were some of your early stuff, and was Journey to Mohawk one of your earliest? Uh, I'm, I took kind of a uh, an unusual route into comics in that I actually uh, I broke into uh, doing children's picture books first. Um, I got out of school just at the time of the big, uh, you know, the famous industry-wide comics collapse. Yeah. And uh, I was trying, I, I initially thought it would be easier to break, I always wanted to do both picture books and comics. And I always assumed that comics would be an easier field to break into, but I had uh, a pretty remarkable streak of as soon as an editor or one of the big publishers was interested in my work, they would be let go. It was <laughs> as the industry was, it's amazing. <laughs> it was just, you know, the contracting. And after a few years of that, I decided I was the kiss of death for that. And uh, I should actually backtrack a little and say that while I was in school, I worked at um, an independent children's bookstore here in New York City. And uh, it was a really great place to work in that I got to meet tons of creators of children's books and tons of editors. And so I had, I had all the connections in place for a children's book career that I just lacked for doing comics. Mm-hmm. So um, I wrote a children's book called Kapow. This is my first uh, you know, book that I wrote and illustrated myself. Uh, it was kind of my idea that I would single-handedly save the floundering comics industry with this. It was about um, a little boy, you only ever learn his name is American Eagle, who dresses up as a superhero, and it kind of alternates where, you know, some spreads he's drawn as a little boy, and then other spreads he's drawn as this, uh, you know, huge hulking superhero that he sees in his mind. And uh, I took that to Simon Schuster, it got published, it did pretty well, luckily for me. It actually hit the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so I kind of, you know, I, I took off running doing these cartoony kids' books. And while, you know, I always made it no secret that I wanted to do comics as well. You know, my, my, that was my other big dream. And um, while I was being published by Simon Schuster, the designer on my books was Mark Siegel. Oh, that Mark was his, his children's line that... Got him the big story. He was, yeah, he was, uh, he was known at Simon Schuster as being the guy who loves comics. And my editor put the two of us together. We hit it off really well. And then uh, a couple of years after that is when he got the opportunity to create for a second mm-hmm. over at, uh, um, which is now Macmillan, it's part of Macmillan. And so, uh, you know, a couple of years later, he gets the job and he extends an invitation to me like knowing that I've always wanted to do comics, and that's when I pitched Mohawk Country. He had uh, actually suggested, like, he's like, I'm open for anything, but if you have anything nonfiction. I had just read a book called uh, Island at the Center of the World by uh, Russell Shorto, which is about the early Dutch history of Manhattan and New York, which is kind of not taught too often. Mm-hmm. Cause, you know, all the documents are in Dutch, and you know, we learn more about like, you know, the New England colonies and such. And it describes this uh, 22-year-old barber-slash-surgeon named Harmon Mind... Wait, let me repeat that. Harmon Minders van den Bogart, 
who <laughs> kind of goes on this uh, this trade expedition with the you know he travels about a hundred miles into the interior of the New World, uh, meets with some Mohawk and Oneida Indians, and works out a trade deal that ensures that there is now a New York City. The Dutch are about to pack up and go home because the French had cut them out of the trade. And this kind of unsung hero of history who kind of ensures that the city that, you know, I mean, I love New York. Like, you know, there wouldn't be a New York as we know it if it weren't for this man. So I pitched this book, and that was my first graphic novel. And like I said, I think that came out in 2006. It's pretty interesting. Like, mo- that's kind of the opposite way most people go, isn't it? Where they kind of I would think start so. out a lot in comics of, and end up doing children's books. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the comics people I know actually are interested in kind of doing the opposite move, going from comics into children's books. I think it's been very good for me that I did that way. Um, it's gotten much better in comics, but uh, used to be, you know, children's books they they treat the creators better. Yeah. And so I, I kind of got used to that level of treatment, and now a lot of the comics publishers are adapting, you know, the kind of, like, like the children's book publishing model, or just general book publishing motto, model. And yeah. uh, since that was what I kind of entered the business in, I kind of expected a certain standard, and I've been very lucky that I've been able to maintain that by working with publishers that offer that sort of that benefit. Well, I've heard nothing but good stuff about working with First Second, so... There, I, I mean, talk about lucky. I feel very, very lucky to to be part of them. They're a pretty wonderful place. It's also interesting, like, from what I understand, it's not often that people write and draw the children bo- children's books. It's usually more of a collaborative process, from what I understand. Yeah. One of the things that was really nice about working in that children's bookstore is, you know, I would always kind of, we would be having signings and, like, you know, I remember speaking to Shel Silverstein, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Light in the Attic and, you know, Where the Sidewalk Ends. And that was actually a piece of advice he gave to me. Uh, other people gave it to you, but he's the best name that gave it to me. But, like, you know, if you write it yourself, you know, not only do you get paid double, which is always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> he was very, you know, he was very, you know, I'm not going to he was very, you know, cut to the chase, but he was a very funny man that way. But uh, it, it also... It was kind of it's nice because you're presenting the publisher with a complete package deal. Yeah. I've been warned against about if you were just trying to break in teaming up with like say like like myself as an illustrator teaming up with a writer who was also trying to break in, it's kind of doubling the chance for the publisher to say no. Mm-hmm. And realistically the publisher is looking for a chance to say no. They have, you know, they call it the slush pile. They get piles and piles of unsolicited manuscripts like every single day they'll get tons of these new Manuscripts. They they look for things to turn down, and if you could have a wonderful story, and if the art wasn't up to par, boom, they'll just turn the whole thing down, and vice versa. Because it's just they don't have enough hours in the day to go through everything. But if you write and you illustrate, you're kind of controlling the whole package, and it's it's good for them too. You have no one else to blame. <laughs> yeah, you can't <laughs> pass the buck. That's what editors are for. Now, tell me about Journey to Mohawk Country. Um, do you touch on any like colonialism issues, or what kind of take is the story? Um, that's a good question. Um, the Dutch colonial history is very different than the English. Uh, the way I've heard it best encapsulated is that where the, the Dutch are really just interested in making a buck. You know, that's kind of the the famous you know view of the Dutch is that they're great businessmen. Uh, they were interested in 
coming over here and the principal trade item was beaver pelts. Uh, back in Europe, they're going through a bit of a craze about creating uh, felt hats and they yeah. would use beaver skin to do that. And uh, really the best way to do that was to come over and trade with the natives. And the best way to have the best trade relations with the natives is to treat them as fairly as possible. They knew there was competition. You know, a lot of other European nations had things set up there. And th so the Dutch actually have a pretty good history of treating the native people of the Americas a, a lot better than what we read in some of the other histories. Yeah, the smallpox um, blankets. And, yeah, 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 I mean, that's our, you know, some of the smallpox things are already, if, if you read through Mohawk Country, Harman van den Bogart, because the only text is what he himself wrote, translated into English, he mentions, like, you know, he goes into some, they're empty, and there's been a lot of illness, and sometimes there's one village they go to in particular where the, in their chief, thinking that he brought an illness on them, and, like, we know now that it's, you know, it's, it's European diseases that are decimating them. Yeah. But, uh, it's basically Harmon and his two Dutch companions traveling into the heart of the, you know, where pretty much no Europeans have been yet and working out what is a better trade deal. They give them a little bit more than the French do, and that works it out. They don't adopt very much of the kind of condescending attitude you might see in a British document at the same time. Um, Harmon, as, uh, like I mentioned, he is a barber slash surgeon. He's actually very interested whenever he uh, gets a chance to observe a healing ritual of the Mohawk. And which is one of the things that really attracted me to the text. He goes above and beyond. It's not just a business document. Yeah. He really records these moments of interest. And it's one of the earliest accounts we have of the Iroquois people. And it's because it's so early, it's very virgin. It hasn't, they haven't had much interaction yet with the Europeans. Uh, whenever he goes into a town or a new village, they're really interested to see the way guns work. You know, and the further out he gets from the colony at what is now Albany, like it's there's less and less. Like the first village he goes to, he notes that they have like nails and like nails and things that they've stolen from yeah. the Dutch. He says, uh, but as they get further and further out, there's less and less of that. Um, it's a very interesting document. He's just a, he seems as if he was just a very inquisitive guy, who he doesn't make the judgments. He just really is interested in finding out more about these people. And, of course, working out the best deal at the end of the day. Where did you go to art school? I went to uh, the Pratt Institute oh, in okay. Brooklyn. Uh, took was a it... course in just general illustration. They don't really have a, a cartooning program yet, but it was, uh, it was a great place to go, especially uh, they have a... Um, they call it the foundation year, where they kind of really... You know, everybody comes in knowing how to draw to some degree. They really break you down and build you back up, and I really recommend them for that. Was it uh, so? It's good for you developing your own kind of personal, unique style. Yeah, I unlearned a lot of the bad things I had taught myself. Learned a lot about drawing from observation. Learned a lot about just you know, especially on a book like say Mohawk Country, where I would actually having be having to do a lot of research. Like, that was one of the things that was really, you know, when you're going to draw something, you know, read about it. Look yeah. into it. See how much you can find out before you start drawing. Mm hmm Before you create your own presuppositions, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Now, Balpeen, it seems, in the complete opposite, or Balpeen Hammer, I should say, in the opposite direction of uh, children's books. Probably <laughs> yeah, as far away as you could get. <laughs> Tell me about uh, how that book worked out. 
I mean, I guess, is this your first time collaborating with a writer? Uh, if you don't count Harmon, who I can't really say that was much of a collaboration as he's been dead for over 300 years. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, all right, just to speak briefly about Mohawk Country, I, it's, in a lot of circles, I think it's interpreted as being a children's book. Um, and I think a lot of that comes out because I, you know, broke into the industry through children's books. But I really meant for it to be an all-ages book, in like the true sense of the word, like anybody mm-hmm. at any age could read that book. But um, I was actually out of the country when the book had come out. When I came back, I just went to see it in children's sections. And that was a little... Disheartening? Uh, yeah, disheartening is a good word for it. I was like, wow, that's not exactly what I intended. I wanted to be in children's sections. So I want adults to see it, too. And I was speaking with Mark Siegel about that. And I wanted to, uh, to you know, do something that would put me into a little bit more of an adult light. I remember him kind of looking at me funny reaching into his desk and pulling out the script for ball-peen hammer. <laughs> saying, you know, take a look at this. It might be what you're looking for. And you know, I took it home, and I read it a couple times. I loved it. And it's, you know, for those who haven't read it yet, it's really dark, <laughs> very dark. And it was so dark, I was like, wow. And I, I made my girlfriend read it, too, and she's a bit more squeamish than me. And she's like, it made me nauseous, but I love it, and you should totally do it. And that was the idea to kind of, like, you know, bust me a little bit out of the, the kid's book realm so hopefully like future works like the olympians you know adults will read that too because they won't think of me just as the kids hopefully i haven't gone too far <laughs> it's like burning bridges <laughs> yeah no all the, the kids are like just traumatized i really hope that no kids take this up by accident but you know the cover alone scared them away and then we have the not for gentle readers on the back cover we, we've warned no. them no it's it, and i really i i love the design where it's all black like that's a really nice aspect like the back the black pages on the outside it, it just went into its uh, second printing and apparently we've amped that up a little bit more where it's going to be even blacker and then some of the first few pages like the title page which is printed right now is black type on white paper we reverse that so I'm really anxious to see that like the you know the super super duper black version of Balpeen Hammer now, do you, do you have much interest in uh, post-apocalyptic stuff before doing this book? Uh, I'm a little, like many people my age, I'm pretty obsessed with zombies in a kind of weird way. This story isn't zombies, but there is something about the post-apocalypse that I feel like in order to do a good post-apocalyptic book, you have to have something new to say on it, and it's getting harder and harder as more and more books are added to the post-apocalypse genre all yeah. the time. Um, but it is something I like. I have to be in the mood for it. I'd say two or three times a year, I probably go through a post-apocalyptic glut where I you know, read a couple books in a row or watch a few movies and get it out of my system. I really appreciate that it's not zombies, though. Like, Yeah, zombies would have really ruined it, right? Yeah, it's, it's very human, which I really enjoyed about it. That was what drew me to it, too. Adam is such a wonderful writer. And it's it's so much about the thing that really got me, like just the, the cadence of his writing, just the rhythms, the way that people spoke. As I was reading the script, I just I I just I'm like I really want to have the chance to act this out with my pencil. Like I really want to be the guy who makes these characters. I want to I want to see what they look like as they say these things. And yeah, it's it is a very human story, despite the fact that it's you know in this society that's just a complete failed society. Yeah. 
If I was young, I'd flee this town. I buried my dreams underground. As did I, we drink to die. We drink to night. Far from home, elephant guns was taken down one by one. Well, they hit down. It's not been found. It's not a
Tell me about Adam, the writer. Um, Adam Rapp. Adam, like, is an incredibly nice guy, which, you know, maybe you wouldn't expect from reading such dark stuff. And he's so, you meet him, and he's such a, like, a calm and collected guy. <laughs> uh, we didn't. We didn't have. We had virtually no interaction while I was working on the book. Um, Ballpin was written as a play. Um, oh, in Adam's okay. own words, it's kind of he. He wrote it, and he's like, "There's no way this could ever be produced as a play." Once again, for those who haven't read it, there's there's a couple of harrowing ro- harrowing roles for children. Yeah. And it would be it would be very hard to imagine how they could pull this off as a play. If only you could so, put mini me in kids clothing. <laughs> oh god. That's <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> Wow, I now I see I want to see that now, but <laughs> But um you know we ha- we had a few email exchanges and and basically Mark was a go between on it for us. Um since the book has been finished, I've met him a few times. Like I said, he's just an incredibly nice guy. Uh but I, I, I like the way that I worked in this, that I didn't have much interaction with them because I, I feel like it allowed me the freedom to interpret things. If I was working with him on a, a, a day-by-day basis and like running every change by him, I think that would lead to a lot of second-guessing. Yeah. And since it was kind of like he wrote this thing and it stood alone as its entire piece, like a written piece, and then I had the opportunity to kind of give my... Like, like I said earlier, to act out with my pencil, and then he saw, like, you know, everything sketched out, then I feel like that was the way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Did Mark have much involvement editorially, or...? Um, yeah, I would say so. There was a few bits um, of text that uh, we repositioned, things that would have worked better if it was a play, but uh an instance I can mention there there's a sequence when two of the main characters first meet. There's Welton who is the musician who's living in this basement and uh Aaron Underjohn who is a writer who comes to stay in the same basement as him. And there's a part for instance that in the original draft they're speaking through um the door to each other. Uh Underjohn is outside and society like we mentioned is totally collapsed. There's like, you know, giant packs of dogs and there's just maniacs running around with like clubs and torches and machetes and stuff and he you know he really wants to get inside and uh he'd actually been inside previously even dropped off a few of his belongings including a gun and while he was out again welton has found the gun and he's on the inside of the door with the gun kind of like who are you and why should i let you in here and there was originally like for instance quite a bit of dialogue told through this door and it probably would have amounted to about maybe like somewhere between 10 and 18 pages of the graphic <laughs> novel of them talking through a door. <laughs> and like, we can't do that. You know, if you were there watching this being acted out live in the immediacy of theater, I think that would have been riveting enough. But I would have run out of angles to draw pretty quick if I had to do it in 18 pages. So we kind of repositioned a few things. But nice. um, that like, stuff like that, Mark, was a great help with. Mm-hmm. That, that would be a lot of... Uh... A lot of door talking. A, a lot of, do- a lot door, of talking. door talking. I'd say there's about maybe two, three pages of door talking right now, which, you know, it's just about right. It's just about right. Well, it, it is really neat. I really enjoyed it, and I was really surprised just, like, how much was left to the imagination, I think, was one of the really st- strong parts of it. Yeah, some, you know, that's, I, I love that. I always, the thing I always use as my example is uh, the first Alien movie, where... 
you, you know, you don't you don't get good glimpse of the monster, and a lot of stuff happens in darkness. And that, for my money, that's always going to be the much more scary. Well, never if I draw something out, it'll never be as terrifying as if you picture it yourself. And I think that's one of the real strengths of this piece that there's so much that's kind of just hinted at in these oblique little ways, and it really lets your mind race and fill in the horror. Like it's this incredibly dark book, and. But if you just glimpse through the photo, like the drawings, you you might not realize how dark it is. No, no, it's it's, little, it's the hints of what they say, the little tiny things that go on. The more and the more you get into it, the more um, terrible it is. The world they live yeah. in, not the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it is a terrible. Ter- it's not a world you'd want to be in. There's no. a lot of terrible, terrible things in it. Now, t- what's the next thing you're working on? The Olympians rule. Olympians Rules, the website promoting the series, which is just going to be called Olympians. It's um, kind of my my dream project. I my my big inspiration ever since I was a little kid was I was always really into the Greek myths, mm-hmm. and um, this one is. Uh, I was actually sitting around with my editor one day. This is a different editor than Mark. This is actually the guy who I, I do my children's books with. And we were kind of uh, talking about a mutual acquaintance of ours, and he referred to him as Cerberus, which I thought was kind of a funny, you know, you can imagine <laughs> about this person. Yeah. And I thought it was just a funny thing. I said something equally geeky back, and he kind of just looked at me, and he pulled this uh, large graphic novel off the shelf, and he's like, what if you did a book retelling the Greek myths, like, you know, in comic style, like this size? And it, it was such a no-brainer for me. It was, I've been drawing the Greek myths in my sketchbooks, since I was a little kid. It's something I've, I've just always loved. So I kind of, in a moment of you know, unparalleled creati- creativity for me, I kind of went home and in about two weeks I drew up about two-thirds, not drew up, finished, but like wrote and you know, thumbnailed about two-thirds of what would be the first book, Zeus. And I came back with this very audacious idea. I'm like, all right, this is the first book. There's going to be 12 of them, one for each of the Olympian gods. And it's going to be, at the end of it, it'll be a series of graphic novels retelling a, a fairly comprehensive set of the Greek myths. Mm-hmm. And each book will be themed. The first book would be like Zeus, and it'll tell the whole ascendancy of the Olympians from the Titans. And then the second book would be like, you know, the second book is Athena, and it'll be different stories either dealing with the god themselves or perhaps something with like, you know, like for instance, like a love story might be in the book about Aphrodite or a story about war might be in the book about Ares. They would be themed in this way. With the general theme, each of the, one of the 12 Olympians would get their own book. So I just about maybe three, four weeks ago finished the second book in the series, Athena. And uh, those are going to, uh, Zeus comes out in January, January of 2010, with Athena launching in April after that. Wow. Yeah. They're each gonna be about 80 pages. And they're coming out from first second. Yeah, first second. It's a it's a kind of interesting thing where it's um, my children's books are published by the same parent company. Mm-hmm. So it's my uh, my children's book editor Neil Porter is the editor on the text, and Mark Siegel he's like the artistic director. It's kind of a, <laughs> a joint project. Yeah, there's a lot of editors involved in this one. Now I'm curious. It's been great though. Are you going to? Um touch on different myths more than once from different angles, or specifically just telling different stories throughout the whole thing? 
there's going to be a little of that. There's going to be, you know, some myths are going to be threaded over a few different books. Like, you know, like, for instance, the story of, like, Daedalus and his different adventures will be told over, you know, him building the labyrinth will be in one book, and then his flight with Icarus will be in another book. Um, I have plans as it is now. There's, um, there's uh, this, it's kind of like a, it's not as well known, but there was... Um, these creatures called the Gigantes, or just the Giants, and they were born when uh, Arrhenus was castrated and his blood fell in Mother Earth, and they kind of launched this, they tried to overthrow the Olympians at, at Mother Earth's, uh, you know, behest. Yeah. And that's going to appear in a couple different books, like different aspects of that battle from different gods' point of views, just because it's a really good chance to show some cool action. <laughs> Not so much as, you know, there's, it's just, it's a huge story. It was very popular in antiquity to uh, illustrate sequences of this. It was, you would find a lot in reliefs on temples or you'd find it on, on vases or sculptures. And for some reason, it's not as well known to modern audiences. I guess because it's so similar to the, you know, the Clash of the Titans, not not the movie like the Olympians fighting the Titans. Mm-hmm. But like that, for instance, will appear in several different books: the the War of the Gigantes. What are you using for your sources? Uh, I'm trying pretty much exclusively to go back to. Sorry, you, you um, cut out there. It, for a second. Anything that was written in antiquity. Okay. So, uh, you know, ancient Greek, and I'm extending it up through Roman sources. So using like Ovid. Uh, yeah, for instance, there's actually there's a little bit of the Ovid that appears in the Athena book. Uh, go back to you know Hesiod, to Homer, to Apollodorus, whoever wrote something. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really amazing once you go back and read these original sources how very cinematic they are already. Especially the Homer stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's some sequences in the Odyssey in particular that I'm, I, it's, it's really astounding when you read that and you realize, I'm reading words, I mean, obviously it's a translation, yeah. but I'm reading words that were threaded together like 3,000 years ago or more, and it's, it's just amazing. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I've read, of course, many, many retellings of the years, but I'm making a point of not trying not to look at anything again you know that's in my mind i know that you know i've seen the movies i've read the books those versions are there but for creating the actual stories and it, it, it is creating it's you know you're piecing together from a lot of different sources to create one narrative um i'm really going back to to ancient sources mm-hmm. for that i i find it fascinating i'm really curious by the project, like you're saying, is it going to be the same size as the other first second books, or are you going to do it bigger? Because that you're talking, they're a about? bit larger. They're about the size of like an, a standard American comic, but maybe about an inch wider. Oh, okay. Some of the first second books have actually been printed in like this larger size, like uh, Kaput and Kaput and Zolsky. Yeah, the um, I think I think Little Vampire they did. So it's it's a little bit bigger, which was something you know I, I wanted to make sure. Like I want these to have. A more uh, dramatic feel than yeah. You know, it's a little bit. It's a little bit more widescreen action and sequences. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite myths that really sucked you into Greek mythology? Wow, when I was a kid, and for some reason this one doesn't resonate quite as strongly with me now, but I was absolutely obsessed with Theseus and the Minotaur. Like. Mm-hmm. I would draw little labyrinths in the side of my notebooks, and I would draw minotaurs all over the place. Um, now, 
you know, since discovering like the uh, the Gigantes, that's always been really interesting to me because there's just something very interesting about the way I'm choosing to depict it is the gods are, you know, more or less human-sized, and the Gigantes are much bigger. And there's something really interesting about drawing that kind of difference in size. Yeah. Battle. Um, I just, for the Athena book, I just got a chance to do my spin on the Medusa myth, which was, that was really fun. You know, I spent, I spent a lot of time thinking about the different characters and... Uh, I came up with a design for Medusa that I was really happy with that I don't think owes much to what anybody else has done before. Um, I'm really looking forward to doing uh, Odysseus and Polyphemus, the Cyclops. That's one that I'm looking forward to draw. I, I, I don't know, so many of them. It'll They're be interesting so... how you weave in Odysseus with some of the older stuff. Yeah, and it's, you know, it is there is a bit of skipping about in time that way. Some of the stories are definitely uh, set much earlier. And, and the Greeks themselves were not always very consistent about that. No. And because I'm trying to create one comprehensive story, um, I've had to be a little bit picky and choosy about... Or to go back to a problem I just dealt with, with Athena. She's born from the head of Zeus. Everyone knows that. But, uh, you know, there's different accounts as to who was the god that actually cracked open Zeus's head so she could pop out fully armed and grown. Most of the versions I read say it's Hephaestus. And I like that. I'm like, okay, it makes sense. Hephaestus is the one to do it. But then there's also a whole set of myths saying that Hephaestus was born by Hera by himself, like with no father, in response to Athena's birth. <laughs> and I'm like, and so Hera, like this is such a weird story. I, almost, I, I think I'm going to have to sneak this in some way, but I don't know how. She's like, oh, so you're going to give birth to a kid by herself? And she eats some lettuce, and she slaps the ground with the palm of her hand, and she gives birth to Hephaestus, which is like, <laughs> what? How does that work? And it's, you know, it's just an odd story, and like kind of, it's a little bit sexist because she doesn't do as good a job because Hephaestus is, you know, he's a little bit lame, like, yeah. you know, his legs don't work. And like that's kind of the insinuations, like, oh, this is what happens when a woman tries to give birth without a man. Like he comes out, you know, defective. But I'm like, you know what? Let's just assume Hephaestus was already there in the scene because otherwise how does Athena get out of the head? That's funny. Have you looked at other uh, comics that have kind of dealt with similar stuff? Um, there's been a few things. It's it's one of those things that I've noticed a lot more, that there's a lot more out there since I've begun working on it. Mm. I should go back to say that um, I, I mentioned that I'm a huge mythology fan, have been for a while, and my, my whole getting into comics is largely as a result of the mythology. I grew up in a very comics-friendly household, and there was always a lot of, you know, comics, like, you know, old Superman and stuff around the house. But about the time, like, when I was really reaching my mythic overload, uh, I discovered Walt Simonson's work on The Mighty Thor. <laughs> and, man, like, that, I just remember, I, like, one day, it was pretty early, it was during, uh, he, was re he was kind of doing a modern-day revisiting of Fafnir the Dragon, and, you know, I had just been reading about Norse mythology because I'd pretty much exhausted the library's supply of Greek stuff. And I was just amazed. I'm like, wow, this is what myths are about. He's really capturing the feeling. It's, you know, it's different. There's superheroes in the background, and it's set in modern day, but he's really picking up on all the mythological themes. And it felt really huge and really big, and that's something I really liked about it. Well, that's something, like, I mean, superheroes in themselves are a form of mythology, and, I mean, that's why... Yeah, I mean, you could, it's... Uh, and that was the pitch for Olympians, too. I was kind of like, you know, the line I used when I went, you know, to my editor, my editor's office and pitched it was like, you know, superheroes 
are the new mythology. Yeah. And you can very easily draw the parallels between different, you know, characters. Well, I think I don't uh, know if this story is apocryphal, but uh, supposedly <laughs> um, I've heard Bill Everett, the creator of, the, of Namor the Submariner, he was kind of, you know, charged with, a, you know, go, you know, that Superman guy's do good. Go create a character like that. And he apparently went to the Museum of Natural History and saw like a statue of Mercury and was just like, oh, there's my guy. And he took the name Roman and just reversed it, Namor, and that's, you know, he created this new superhero. And it's, you know, winged feet and all. And it's, it's not that hard to see all the similarities between the superheroes and the original, you know, mythological characters, mm-hmm. even yeah. when it's not like Thor. Well, Flash takes a lot on. Yeah, Flash. He, yeah, Flash also. The original Flash, he had the winged helmet. I think he had winged boots, even. Yeah. There's a lot of these motifs. And I know I've seen, I've read interviews about Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Like, they very purposely, you know, took elements of Hercules and Samson to create Superman. Yeah. Um, Jack Kirby's New Gods. Yeah, God, that took me a little bit later, later to discover, but... I mean, everything Jack Kirby did just owes so much to, so much to it. Yeah, it's all good stuff. So many comics, so little time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today, George. No problem. Um, I really enjoyed Balpina. I really look forward to uh, the um, the Olympians' rule. Who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul Not to put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet Make a little birdhouse in your soul I have a secret to tell From my electrical well It's a simple message And I'm leaving out the whistles and bells So the room must listen to me Filibuster vigilantly My name is Blue Canary One note spelled L-I-T-E My story's infinite Like the Longines Symphony It doesn't rest Blue Canary in the alley by the light switch Who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul Not to put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet Make a little birdhouse in your soul Too fine a point on it Say I'm the only being
Find a point on it. Say I'm the only being here. 